The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Today I read in the book of Acts, the last portion of chapter 4, follow up to what we had been considering in the last few weeks as an incident occurred of a great healing, one that couldn't be denied because of the nature and age of the man involved, a healing done in the name of Christ by faith in that name, which aroused the animosity of the Jerusalem establishment upon the apostles. We saw last time how they were rebuked and warned not to speak in that name of the risen Jesus any longer, but uh, they went out saying, we have to speak of what we have seen and heard and what we know to be true. So I read now in Acts 4, 23, the aftermath of that incident through verse 33, not quite to the end of chapter 4 of Acts. Listen to God's word. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and speak to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Here is God's holy word, to be reverenced by us as the voice of God himself. I'm told that in parts of Southern California or Central California where there are frequent earthquakes, natives are sort of earthquake-proof, at least in terms of getting excited about slight tremors. One man spoke of how these had been a part of his lifelong experience, and he said, you can tell in San Francisco when the Richter scale hits 0.5, 
because that's when the plate glass windows pop out of the older buildings all over town. In other words, he had a barometer. Until I see windows popping out of older buildings, nothing to worry about. Well, I'm asking today if there's a Richter scale effect for the result of Christian prayer. Should we anticipate some kind of seismic tremors when God responds to the prayers of his church and does mighty things in our generation? Or is it possible that God is answering prayer daily and weekly in great ways, remarkable ways, and we're actually rather oblivious to what he's doing? Acts so far has told us about frenzied opposition to the gospel of Jesus, healing a man. We've seen how the high priests and the the captains of the guard and so on, all of these intellectuals gathered together and said, oh, why, that's a wonderful thing that happened. Look, that man lame for 40 years has been healed. They didn't deny it. They didn't even try to deny it. And yet they opposed this work because it was done by the power of faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It was a a power that they couldn't control, and so they sought to silence it. And now in Acts 4, we find this wonderful recorded prayer, many firsts as we've been going through Acts. And and here's a first lengthy prayer given by the apostles themselves in Acts chapter 4. It stands out as a bright example of prayer in times of opposition, in times of difficulty and even persecution. I think there's a lot to learn about prayer here. And you know, when you think about it, it's pretty surprising that it was the apostles slash disciples who are giving this prayer because they weren't notable teachers about prayer before this, were they? If you just go back a matter of months to when they were walking with Jesus in his earthly ministry, they were admiring the way he prayed, and they came to him and said, Lord, we've never seen anybody pray quite like you. Would you teach us to pray the way you do? We'd like to learn your secret. And you know that he did give them instruction. And yet even near the end, as they came to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, near the cross, when Jesus said, this is the critical time to pray, men, what did they do? They fell asleep. They gave in to their human weakness. So it's a little strange that they now become our prayer instructors, but we have to take into account the action of the Holy Spirit on these people. And the fact that now they come with a new concept of God, and they now have new content in what they request of him, and they see consequences that they would not have seen before by their own prayers. If you want different names for the three points that are offered here today, you could call it invocation, petition, and answer. But I want you to see in this a model for how to pray when times are tough and people are opposed to you. Now, I have a long first point and a a very short second and short third points today, so don't get alarmed by the length of the first point. But in the first place, I would put before you that effectual prayer begins with a right concept of God. Effectual prayer begins with a right concept of God. What we would call the invocation part of this, the calling upon God, is in verses 24 through 28. And it shows, as these disciples began to pray, how 
they saw God's divine sovereignty as the finest possible foundation on which to pray, on which to build a prayer. Now, we remember they've been rudely arrested. They've been threatened. And, you know, you shouldn't take that lightly. I mean, you see them walk away and say, well, we have to do what God says, not what you say. Consider who they were saying that to, to the very people who crucified Jesus only two months before. There was a lot of bravado there, if you want to think about it, because these men, these Sanhedrin, could easily have said to them, and we don't hear that they said it, but they could have, do you remember what we did to your Jesus? Don't you think we can do that to you? We can easily put up a cross for each of you if you will not obey us. And yet they didn't obey. They went out and they told the great things of God and they came back to their friends and the other disciples who were gathered and it says the first thing they did was to lift their voices together to God in prayer. I think that there might have been a lot of alternative things to do if you consider it for a minute. What, what else would they might maybe have done in light of this opposition besides pray? Well, they could have had a protest march they could have said, hey, go get some cardstock and some, some, you know, laths of wood and make some signs and, and we'll, we'll march around the temple and protest this injustice of the Sanhedrin. People might have done that today. Another alternative, they could have modified their message. They could have said, whoa, you know, maybe we shouldn't be quite so bombastic and quite so bold about what we're having to say if we could just temper things a little bit we'll stay out of trouble. Or, you know, they could have sought a popular 21st century uh, approach and uh, conducted a man-in-the-street interview and taken a poll and said, hey, what message about Jesus would you like us to say? Because that's what we'll say. But they didn't do any of those things, did they? They prayed. And neither is their prayer a kind of you know, seeking refuge in a safe place and bringing their trembling fears and and telling God how scared they are. It wasn't their raising up God's name and saying, oh God, how could you let us get into a jam like this? Nor was it, Lord, we thank you for protecting us this time, but please don't ever let this happen to us again. It's not how they prayed. What did they say? Acts 4.24 says they lifted their voices together to God. And they said, Sovereign Lord, you who made heaven and earth and sea, you who spoke by the mouth of of your servant David in the past and allowed us to see everything that David predicted coming true right among us as you planned and you predestined it would happen. That's how they prayed. In other words, I want you to think hard about to whom the apostles prayed. They prayed to the God who was their creator, the revealer of his own word, and who also was the planner and executor of all things in history. They came to him and said, Lord, you made everything, you spoke, you decided. You're the God we're going to speak to. Now it's pointed out, frequently that there's an unusual title for the word Lord here when they said sovereign Lord. There are several Greek words that can be translated Lord, and there's an unusual one used here, and it's the Greek word despote, from which we get a despot. 
And usually today in the modern world, to call any leader a despot is, is not a compliment. It's not a nice thing. We think of that with a negative connotation that here's a tyrant. Here's a person in his country, maybe a Middle Eastern country or somebody like Gaddafi in Libya for years. He's gone now. But for many years, you know, who had basically unlimited power. And he could manipulate the money of his country any way he chose to, spend it on himself, put it in his own bank account, tyrannize his people, wipe out his enemies. That's what we think a despot does. But actually, the word despot only means unlimited power, someone whose power does not have specific restraints upon it. It doesn't mean that he has to use it for evil. And so in the right sense, the Bible's God is a despot. His power is unlimited. He is the chief executive. He is the legislature. He is the judiciary. You see, we don't, in our country, dare give all that power to one person. You know, we, we're electing a president, and we say, whoa, he's the most powerful guy in the free world. Well, he may be, but even in our own country, he doesn't have absolute power. He has to seek the cooperation of the Congress and the, be within the boundaries of the judiciary and so on to balance him out. But that's not God. There's no restraint on his power. He's the one that through Isaiah 46, 10, the Lord spoke there and said, my purposes will stand. I will do all that I please. Now, if an individual says that today within your circle of relationships, if a husband or a wife or, or a teenager says, I will do all that I please, whoa, you know, you're going to pull back because there's a, there's a problem in relationship. And anyone says, I have the absolute ability to act unto myself. And yet this is who we pray to, a God who does all that he pleases. He doesn't negotiate with us to see what he should do. He doesn't say, well, here's my idea. What do you think? Let's have a little dialogue about it first. He is the God who does all that he pleases. He is the sovereign Lord And then this passage breaks that down into three kind of subunits or illustrations maybe. The first way is seen in creation, verse 24. He's the God who created everything. That's maybe one of the first ways we think of him as sovereign. He spoke and things came into being which did not have being before. He didn't start out with the world and say, I think I'll modify it or I think I'll, you know, revise it a little bit. He made it be when there was nothing. He created ex nihilo, out of nothing. You know, I'm, I'm so aware of how I walk through this world. I, I assume many of you are like me. I just don't look up very much. If I did, I'd walk out in my front yard once in a while at night and look up and see the stars. I don't know why we don't look up. We don't live outside as much as agricultural people once did. I guess we're just not aware of it. But I, we have occasion to do this even if we don't go out and look up. You can get a book from the library about the Hubble telescope. Get that book sometime. Well, there's more than one, of course, astronomy books to see what the telescope shows you about the stunning wonders of the universe, pictures that will, will just leave you breathless of what God made. And then think that this same God is also the creator of the the geese that go honking over your yard in formation every year right on schedule. And you think, why do they know to do that? Why aren't they going north instead of south? What is that about? 
Is that Mother Nature, you know, famous Mother Nature? No. That's the God who made even these animals who couldn't speak to you or explain to you or explain to one another what they're doing or why they're doing it, but they're doing it according to the patterns in which God has created them. So we wonder at a God who is creator as we pray. And then, too, we wonder, verses 25 and 26, at a God who's not just creator but a speaking God, a revealing God, a God who wants to make himself known and in his word has done that. Because Scripture is God talking to mankind through mankind and through his Holy Spirit. And we are advised to soak our minds in what this God has revealed to us so that we would know about him before we would speak to him. You know, apart from Scripture, if I come to God, I'm going to pray guided only by my own vain imagination and think, well, let me stop and think before I start to pray. What's God like? Maybe I better make a list of what I know about him. And, and all that I would say I know comes out of my own mind, which is, is sinful and selfish and focused on my own needs. And so if I would write down a list, here's what, God, what I think God is like, well, chances are the list wouldn't contain a lot of good information. But if I go to what God himself has revealed to show us he is like, then I can come and meet with him and talk to him and speak to him with an informed kind of intimacy and with right expectations and with promises and plans and things he's done in the past informing me. And the apostles, as they prayed, showed us one way to pray, very importantly, go to Scripture. And they bring in Acts 2 here in, the, in verses 25 and 26. It's, if you don't know, it's Acts 2 that they're quoting from there as they say, what you said through our father David, your servant, by the Holy Spirit. And then they quote this passage in which in this messianic psalm, God spoke and said, look, do you want to know how it's going to be in this world? I'm going to be opposed by all kinds of people. They're going to oppose me. They're going to oppose my son. They've set themselves against us. And if you went on and read more of Psalm 2, you'd, you'd hear God saying that he laughs at them. He laughs at the pitiful things that they have to say. Now, what kind of a perspective does it give me as a man to come to God and know what to say and, and what might be on God's mind if I know he's already predicted the opposition of unbelief to his people, and in fact, he's laughing at it. He's not upset about it. He's not excited about it. He's not surprised about it. He's laughing at it. Doesn't that give me a really different perspective to come to God when I'm being opposed for a matter of faith? and do it understanding something about who he is. You see, God wants us to be informed in advance when we pray and to use his scriptures as a matrix from which to pray, to give us advance information about what we're going to him for. I happen to be in the large, giant supermarket just a mile or so south of here the other day. I had forgotten that that was a a 24-hour-a-day store when I walked in fabulous grocery store, everything you could possibly think of. And let me just give what may be a weak illustration, but suppose as a shopper I said to myself, well, let's see, Uh, I need to shop for certain things. Now I know they have that wonderful giant store. It's enormous. It it must have everything. So I need some two-by-fours, 
and I need uh, some jewelry to give my wife for her birthday, and I need some auto parts. So certainly I'll go there and I'll, I'll get those things all under that one roof. Well, I won't get any two-by-fours or any jewelry or any auto parts, as far as I know anyway, at the giant supermarket because they don't carry those things. And yet, there are people who go to God in prayer just that ignorant and just that foolishly. And they say, well, you know, I'm sure God's interested in doing this for me and this for me. And, And God, in fact, has no intention of doing those things for you because you don't know the God you're coming to pray to. And that's what Acts is is doing here. You see, it's not only a God who potentially can do things for you, but in verses 27 and 28, it further says that we look not only at what your word says, but at what you've actually done before our eyes. You in Jesus Christ and the cross here worked out these things you planned and predestined to do, and we've seen them just in the recent months. Your sovereign ways, your, your... Predictions from Psalm 2 have happened before our eyes. And so we have some idea how to pray, who to pray to, and what you're like, oh God. We have an idea of what to believe about you because you are the sovereign Lord. I've said numerous times from this pulpit, I probably keep on saying it for years, and maybe someday somebody will actually remember that I said it that every problem you have with prayer is first a problem with your understanding of God. When you want to talk about unanswered prayer or all kinds of things, you say, I've just got a problem. Prayer doesn't seem to work. Let me tell you, your problem is with understanding God. Because if you understood the biblical God, who he is, you would have far less problem coming to him in prayer. Do you see what a grand thing it is to begin with a biblically informed concept of who God is? And to know that he, for example, does not tremble at the things you tremble at. That he has not lost control when you've lost control. That you don't address a sometimes sovereign God who's, you know, sovereign uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Sundays. He's always sovereign. There's no limitations upon his sovereignty. But do your prayers demonstrate that you have a knowledge of that? How encouraging it is to petition a God who's not fickle, who's unchangeable. And to know that what we're doing in praying is not coming in a negotiating session to say, God, couldn't I kind of change your mind about this? You know, maybe if I ask you long enough and loud enough, you'll, you'll change your mind and you'll be different. That's not prayer. That's not what prayer is about. Prayer is not about changing God's mind. Luther said it, prayer is never about overcoming God's reluctance to do a thing. It's laying hold of his willingness to do many things you haven't even thought or imagined. Well, my first point was long, but my second is really quite brief now. Secondly, I want you to realize from Acts 4 that invoking this sovereign Lord Coming to him with a proper understanding of who you're praying to brings proper requests. Verses 29 and 30 give us the quick petitions of this prayer. The content, we'll call it, of God-centered prayer. And notice that the requests, of course, do not come first here, do they? These disciples apparently spent a fair time, at least by the proportion of what's in this text, 
worship a God, adoring him, reminding themselves who he is before they ask for anything. Isn't that exactly the reverse of what we do? When we think to pray at all, we say, okay, God, here I am. I think I can spare five minutes for you. Uh, I need this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, by the way, you're a wonderful God. I sure thank you for being faithful to me. Uh, thank you for Jesus Christ and my salvation. Amen. You know, maybe we work a little bit of adoration in if we think of it. But the requests are always first, aren't they? Here, the adoration, the worship of God is the main course of the meal. And the requests are the dessert, if you will. And here are those requests in Acts 4. Now, Lord, consider their threats. So he was asking God to look upon what was happening. Look for the verbs. Consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word. That's a verb. Make us able with great boldness. And then here's another one. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform. You see, verbs, we're asking God to do things. Now, not so many months ago, when these men walked with Jesus on the earth, well, it's probably a year or more ago, but earlier in the ministry of Jesus, there was a time when, remember, a town sort of turned them away with, you know, turned Jesus and his message away in a rude fashion. And the key disciples got around, these same key guys got around Jesus and said, Lord, we know who you are. We know how those people behave towards you. That was terrible. Should we call down fire from heaven to blast them? See, that was what they thought you should do with opposition in those days. Jesus said, no, that's not the way we're going to treat this opposition. Well, that's not what they do now. They didn't say, Lord, drop bolts of lightning on the Sanhedrin because of the way they've treated your gospel. They don't even pray that. What do they pray? Nor do they say, you know, they don't say, Lord, we just got in a lot of trouble. And you know, it was trouble for you, so... Shouldn't something different have happened? What they do say is, Lord, we got in trouble because we obeyed you. We're glad for the privilege of doing that. We intend to get in that trouble again. Will you make us able to speak even more boldly than we did this last time so that we can get in more trouble for you? Don't we always pray, Lord, make it go away? You know, no matter what it is, an unpleasant circumstance, an illness opposition, criticism. Lord, make that go away. That's not how they prayed. They said, Lord, this came from being your people and obeying you, so make us bold and help us stand to endure it and to bring you glory. What a wonderful request. That's the kind of a request that only comes for a person who prays to the sovereign Lord who's already laughing at his enemies, and they know he's laughing at his enemies, and so they're not afraid of their enemies. Requests, you see, will be rightly ordered by knowing who you pray to. Now lastly here, I have you look at verse 31 to see the consequences of it. We read, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Here's prayer that shakes the world in the third place. Now, a skeptic could say, oh, you know, I don't think that building actually shook. I think the apostles were really wrapped up and emotional and, and, you know, very passionate about what they were doing, and they imagined that it shook. 
Well, the text very plainly says the place, the place shook because God is the ultimate mover and shaker. I don't imagine that this has to happen every time someone prays effectively. In fact, Lord, for the sake of our building, I'm not sure I want it because we just fixed some bricks where there was a settlement crack down here, and if you're going to move and shake every time we pray effectively, we've got a lot of brick repair to do on the floor. The point is not that we have to feel this. The point is that we would ask, what does that mean? And isn't that the all-powerful God responding and saying, I indeed can move with power, and I will in history, I will move things and shake things. There's a parallel text in Hebrews 12, 26, where the Lord speaks through that writer and says, it's actually quoting from an Old Testament passage, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this means the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken might remain, for we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Isn't that telling us in the terrible times in which we live, times when we don't have any idea what the headline is going to be in tomorrow's news, that no matter what terrorist event arises, what catastrophe, what bad news for our own nation and our politics and our economy and all of this, that God is the one who is unshaken himself. And as he shakes and sifts in history, he's bringing about his results that the good of his righteousness working out in his believing people, the church, in history and in eternity, is bringing a work about that is earthquake-proof while everything that's merely built by man will crumble. I think this text tells us one of the acid tests of our Christian profession of faith is how we react to opposition, disappointment, and difficulty, whether it comes for a a deliberately Christian cause or, or any other cause. Do you go to prayer when you're being opposed or when you're up against an obstacle? Or do you just go to complaint and venting and wearying everybody around you with your whining about why is my life not any better than this? Do you pray in a way that recognizes the sovereignty of God? I don't think that we're being shown here that the earth has to literally rumble under our feet every time we effectively pray. In fact, I know that God quietly accomplishes more things in this world when believers are petitioning him than most people ever dream about. He's doing things, changing people, changing minds, turning events, and some of it happens so quietly, and we turn around, and only after the the fact we look at it, we say, wait a minute, How how did that happen? That's completely different from what I thought would happen. Why is that? Because people pray. God works powerfully and shakes among the affairs of nations because his people pray. He shakes up the status quo as we know it. 
And in the early church, the result of that was a great unity. It was bold preaching. It was fervent worship. It was outpoured generosity to others in need. All of that came because they prayed. I just ask you folks, does America need to shake? Does America need some shaking? One form of shaking can happen at the ballot box and will. We can do important things for our country there, and we should. But I believe the Word of God teaches us that there's a more important and fundamental shaking that can go on as God's people humble themselves before him, seek his face, and pray and say, Lord, this cliff that they tell us we're heading for in our economy, this cliff that we're already arrived at in our morality and our national life, and people are flying over the cliff like lemmings, pouring by the tens of thousands to disaster. Lord, you can affect these things. But we haven't been praying. Your church hasn't been asking you, the sovereign Lord of all power, to do the things that we know you can do. And maybe what we haven't even been asking for is that we in the church need to be shaken first. That we in the church who are supposed to know him well need our teeth rattled a little bit with a jolt from the Holy Spirit to say, it's time to stop simply complaining and lampooning and drawing cartoons and telling snide jokes about the people you politically disagree with and all of that and to do the one thing that we have the ability to do that others don't to pray to the God of unlimited power and say, Lord, pour yourself out on this nation in this time. We need it. And nothing else is going to accomplish what prayer can do, folks. Vote by all means. But even a vote doesn't do what prayer can do. And I tell you that God's best provision for us against hostile people, dangerous times, circumstances that are out of control, family problems that leave you without answers, God's answer is humble yourself and pray to the one who's the sovereign Lord. Stand back and watch him work. Prayer upon his most excellent name by faith in Jesus Christ, brings a bold declaration towards him who is the Lord of all. And it's the answer for everything. Be prepared for him to shake among the nations. Let's pray together. Father, you have given your church the right response. We have seen your church take that response here with joy and fervent passion. And you didn't just shake a house there that day. You filled your people with your spirit. You sent out a bold message that reached all nations. You turned kingdoms around so that Rome, that was in absolute authority in that hour, was out of business a century later. You are the sovereign Lord. We pray to you in this hour of America's great 
need. Do it again. Amen.